WFYI podcast brought to you by Bloomington, Indiana, an American college town offering food and drink, college sports, outdoor activities, live music, cool art, and good times daily. Everyone is welcome in Bloomington. More information at visitbloomington.com. What we're going to do right here is go back, way back, back into time. This is Butch Slaughter, and you're listening to the Echoes of Indiana Avenue. Welcome to my neighborhood, the Avenue. I grew up here, and each week I'll be sharing the sounds and stories of the people that made the Avenue great. Welcome back to the Avenue. We have a very special episode for you this week. For the next hour, we'll be speaking with the extraordinary Eunice Trotter. Eunice Trotter is one of Naptown's most distinguished and accomplished residents. Eunice is best known for her trailblazing work as a journalist. She began writing for the Indianapolis Recorder as a teenager in the late 1960s, eventually becoming the paper's editor-in-chief and owner. She was also the first black editor at the Indianapolis Star. She began writing for the paper in 1976. In 2017, the Indiana chapter of the Society of Professional Journalists honored Trotter's achievements by inducting her into the Indiana Journalism Hall of Fame. We'll be discussing all that and more this week, including Eunice Trotter's new book, Black in Indiana, which tells the story of Eunice's great-great-great-grandmother, Mary Bateman Clark, and her fight to end the practice of indentured servitude in Indiana. But first, We'll hear about Eunice's work in music, both as a performer and as a music journalist. During the 1960s, Eunice sang with a local R&B group called Sam and the Soulettes. WFYI's Kyle Long recently spoke with Eunice Trotter. Let's join their conversation. Ms. Trotter, thank you so much for being here today. It's an honor to have you here today. I've wanted to speak with you for a long time, so it's a pleasure to have you here today. Thank you. Thank you for having me here. This is really an honor to be here. Thank you. You have an amazing new book out called Black in Indiana, and we're going to talk about that later. But first, I wanted to talk about some aspects of your life and career that I think um, maybe you haven't spoken about much publicly. And But before we get to that, I did want to talk about your early years in Indianapolis. You were born and raised here, from what I understand. You grew up in the Martindale neighborhood? Yes, I did, yeah. uh, at 20th and Columbia. Mm-hmm. Graduated from Tech High School as a 17-year-old, and uh, then I was off to the races. Mm-hmm. And I did want to ask about your father, because you write a little bit about your father in this book, and... It just really stuck with me, some of the things you said about him. He sounds like a person with a lot of really powerful ideas. You refer to him as a follower of Marcus Garvey. Yes. You also mention, I think, in the book that he was a draft resistor and faced 
a, a prison sentence for yes. taking a stance on this issue. Tell me a little bit about your father. And it sounds like, you know, he must have been an influence on you in some ways. Well, definitely, uh, whether I wanted it or not. Uh, yeah, my dad was born in Vincennes, Indiana, as, you know, was many of his ancestors. And he, he came here as a teenager. He lived on Indiana Avenue. Uh, his dad was a carpenter slash plumber slash electrician. And so my dad became a, a skilled tradesman as well. He became a licensed electrician. And so he would um, do all the repair work for the, the various nightclubs and businesses on the avenue. So he'd put in the buzzer doors and, you know, the, the lighting for the stages and that kind of stuff. And a lot of times we'd go with him. Uh, and he would plonk, as he called it, on the piano. He, he was from a very musical family. Um, I, I mean, you know, international and national acclaim musicians. And so he he never had any formal music training, but he would plonk. So we always had a, a piano in our home. So as I grew up on 20th and Columbia, it was during an era when uh, my siblings were involved in the music industry. Uh, in one way or another, my sister Ethel McCain uh, was a member of the Cordell singing group, and they cut records they never really made money for, but they cut records and did you know, appearances at some of the entertainment venues at that time for young people, such as St. Rita's and the Hill Center and those kind of groups. Yeah, yeah. I was And then my brother-in-law, Dwayne Garvin, Buzz, he he would be around all the time. And then Lester Johnson would be around all the time. And all these musicians would be around all the time. So we were full of music. And uh, then my mom sent us to have some formal music training. But I was the one who never really took hold of it and kept it. But so, I, But I do plunk on the piano as well. You know, I kind of got a yearning, earning for music because I would be forced by my older siblings to go upstairs as they had rehearsals in the house, Cal. <laughs> so I'd look through the stairs, you know, and see them and, you know, learn all their music. I knew all of their songs, and uh, they would never let me sing. They would tell me, go somewhere and sit down. <laughs> and so that's what I had to do. And But as I became a teenager, and they had left home and gotten married and so forth, um, music was still kind of just in my blood, and uh, I started a, a singing group with a couple of women that I was in high school with, uh, Brenda Averett and uh, Sylvia. Her name became Green, but Sylvia um, and I and Brenda, who was a part of the Words of Wisdom later, uh, and I had a singing group. So we learned all the songs of that time and brought on a guy uh, his name is Sam White. He's deceased now. He moved to California. But uh, so we became Sam and the Solettes. And uh, 
we uh, we would entertain at various nightclubs, even though we probably should not have been there. No, no, probably to it. We were too young to be in those places, but we did it anyway. So places like uh, the Demonstrators and Twenty Grand and other places, you know, we sang for Operation Breadbasket events and. So we thought we were on fire, you know, and uh, that group evolved and it encompassed other people who came and went. Um, Kathy Johnson, uh, a a woman now who uh, is an artist here in town. She was a part of our group. Her name then was Sonia Jennings. And just we we just had a good time. We had fun and we thought we were, you know, fabulous celebrities. And we wore all the makeup and the big hair so we'd look older, you know. (laughs) (laughs) We featured your sister, (laughs) Ethel, on one of the early editions of this program and talked about her time with the Cordells. And they were a pretty big deal here in Indianapolis at that time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's probably what helped me get the get the burn to to do it because they were they they traveled. And like I said, they cut records and some of their music is still, you know, available now. Mm-hmm. On, on on the web. I did want to ask before we move on about Sam White. I'm curious uh, what other projects he was involved in because I believe he had a relationship with Warren Burris. Yes, Sam he and did. Warren. Yeah. They had a duo kind of like Sam yeah, and Dave. They did. They yeah, Sam yeah, and you yeah. knew Warren Burris. Yeah, Warren was in the neighborhood too. Hmm. And so, you know, uh, Greg Bacon was in the neighborhood. We had some great entertainers in our neighborhood. Uh, yeah, Sam and Warren, they were in laws actually. Um, Salafiel, who is Warren's sister and Sam have a child. And so, you know, we're just kind of like one big family over there. Yeah, yeah, that was great. You, you do your homework, huh? <laughs> and you were a teenager during this time, right? Yeah, How I was old a were you during this period of your life? High school? 15, 16, wow. 17. And you were out in the nightclubs singing? Yeah, and, yeah. I sure was. Yeah, yeah I did. I was uh, singing Soul Sister. In addition to singing as a teenager, you were also, I know, uh, writing for the school paper, Arsenal Tech, and you also started really your professional journalistic career as a teenager. You wrote the uh, Teen Talk column for the Indianapolis Recorder, which I don't think they – it was always published anonymously, right, under the name The Snooper, right? Yeah, But uh, it was sort of like a gossip column and current events column geared towards teenagers, right? Tell me about your work writing this column for the recorder. Yes, we well, we would use the the titles of songs to spew gossip about each, teenagers, you know. <laughs> you know, um, Helen Smith is singing I'll Be There to Joe Jones, you know, like the, 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 the um, Jackson 5 song I'll Be There. So we would use that title in a, in a sentence, uh, you know, reporting on some kind of teen relationship or event. And so the column would also be sort of a review spot for nightclub acts and for parties and social events. So I got to go to a whole lot of different social events and concerts and do reviews on them uh, through the recorder, some of which was in Teen Talk and then some of which was used as separate articles. And so uh, I I began writing this column called uh, Party Party People. People. That's what I want to ask you about. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) 
Yeah, so yeah. L- let me set this up real quick. Because, you know, you're known for your work as sort of a straight journalist, right? You're in the Indiana Journalism Hall of Fame. I believe you were the first black editor at the Indianapolis Star. You had a long relationship with the recorder, eventually became the head editor and owner of the Indianapolis Recorder. So you're one of the most legendary and decorated uh, journalists in Indiana, right? Really? Okay. <laughs> yeah. But I never oh. hear you, I never hear your work as a music journalist mentioned in relationship with your other achievements, right? But I actually think your work as a music journalist was really important. And for people like me who've come along years later who are trying to research and understand the history of music in Indianapolis, the columns you wrote in Party People are extremely important and documented things that no other journalists were documenting. You were really, you had a great sense of what was important and unique in the music scene here and were writing about artists in a serious way sometimes that other people ignored. So you wrote this article for the recorder from I believe 74 to 76, Party People. And yeah, I want to ask you about this, how it came about. You alluded to uh, this being sort of an outgrowth of the uh, Teen Talk column. Is that right? Yeah, it was. It, it was. It Because there was so much that I would, you know, experience and gather that wasn't to be in Teen Talk. It didn't go and work in, in, that, in that particular column. So that's how the Party People column came about. Uh, Mr. Marcus Stewart, who was the uh, publisher at the time that I came there as a teenager, just kind of let me do anything. And... Uh, you know, as long as I did it well, he would say, you could do it. So he just let me write columns. Did I get paid for most of them? No. <laughs> no pay, no money. Uh, but I did make a lot of great connections. I got to meet a lot of celebrities. I remember meeting James Brown. That was the highlight of my life to this day. And uh, went to his concert and got to do a review, you know, and just, just a, just a, I don't know. I can't count the, the different um, artists that I was able to, to interview and just to touch. Mm. And so that, that was, that was something. But that's interesting because when I, that you said that I was providing information that was important for that time, I think I saw that as a way to do some grassroots level you know, conversing with um, with these artists. Uh, so I could ask them whatever I wanted to ask them and had no qualms about the questions and really had no real formal training about what questions I should ask or should not ask. So we would just have conversations. And they would look at me like, well, you know, you, you work for this little paper, you know, hurry up and get through. But I would let them push me off and I would just try to get as much out of them as I could, Cal. And... Uh, it was a great time, a great a great period in my life. So the Party People column was, in a sense, sort of on-the-job training for your future work as a journalist, learning how to kind of get information out of people and kind of stand your ground as a journalist. Absolutely, yeah, because yeah. Can, can you imagine trying to get backstage at a concert with a big-shot celebrity? Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so you had to know and learn how to kind of elbow your way in and, you know, have that confidence and respect. Uh, to to be able to access these people. Were you also photographing for this column? Because yeah. they always had photos, really yeah. great photos as yeah, well. Yeah, I did. You, did yeah. you keep those photos? Are they archived anywhere? Well, if they are, they would be archived with the photo, with the uh, recorder Recorded. collection. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah, in those days, we used to do photography and have to do the, you know, the development of those films in the recorder building itself in a dark room. So I didn't get that down to art, but. You know, I would do parts of that process and let the, the experts handle it. So they 
had they had hands on with all the photography, so they just wanted me to give them the film and go back to the newsroom, <laughs> let them handle it. You mentioned you were covering James Brown, and I know you covered like Cool and the Gang and a lot of the oh, big yeah. acts. Yeah, yeah. But I think the work you did covering the local artists was really important. You were writing about groups that I think there's no other. Um, reference point for in, in the Indianapolis media, right? Like Black Magic, oh, yeah. Energy yeah. Crisis, yeah. Hamilton Movement. You were writing about a lot of groups that no one else was paying attention to, but have since uh, proven to be very important groups. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. One example of that is a group called Tarnished Silver you wrote about in the mid-1970s. And this group is unique, and the article you wrote is unique, because I believe this is the first article ever written about Kenny Babyface Edmonds. So you were the first journalist to ever really take notice of this young man's talent and, uh, you know, write him up and, and let people know about this kid that was uh, at North Central High School making this incredible music. So do you remember writing about Babyface and Carnage Silver back in the 1975? You know, well, you're making me go way back. <laughs> you are making me go way back. I, I don't remember that. I, you know, I just, I don't. <laughs> but I, but if what I do remember doing is trying to, um, be accessible to anyone who was in the entertainment business at all. Um, you know, and I went to high school with some of them, like Kevin Farrell. We we both we went to Tech together, you know, and he was you know he's a vocalist and Flash Farrell, yeah, 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 yeah. Flash Farrell, yeah. yeah. And so, uh, you know, I, I, it was an open door for me. It, I, you know what? Those kind of self-serving too, <laughs> because it made me a, a hot commodity hot commodity for going into the circles that I want to go into and uh, at that time. So I didn't get to miss too many parties and too much good time. This is Butch Slaughter, and you're listening to the Echoes of Indiana Avenue. Our guest this week is the accomplished Indianapolis journalist Eunice Trotter. We've been talking about party people. A column Eunice wrote for the Indianapolis Recorder during the 1970s. Let's return to our conversation with Eunice Trotter. Another entertainer I want to ask you about is Baby Leon. All right, is everybody ready? Yeah! I want you to get in line. Have you heard about the Boogaloo and the Great Van? But you haven't did one thing, baby. About the shoe shine. When we look back at the history of Indiana Avenue, this is an artist who really stands out as being a memorable and dynamic performer. Yes, when I talk is. to musicians from yes. the Avenue, they always say Baby Leon, Baby Leon, as being one of the most incredible. He was sort of like Indianapolis's James Brown. In yes, some he ways. was. Yes, he um, was. Despite the importance of Baby Leon, there's almost no historical or biographical information about this man, except an article you wrote for Party People, kind of digging in a little bit to his life. At the time, he was he appeared in some uh, trashy movie called Zebra Killers or something that. like that. But yeah, you wrote about you know, some yeah, of the that, activities that, he was involved in. That was in. up at uh, Uptown Theater, I think. Okay. It, it, yeah. it, 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 there was a preview of it yeah. at the Uptown Theater. And there was a standing room only crowd that came out to see. I remember that. Yeah, what do you remember about Baby Leon? And yeah. Well, you know, Baby Leon, I, I remember he was in all the local clubs, and he was an entertainer. And so, much like uh, the King James Version kind of entertainment, just didn't sing. He was all over the place, like a James Brown. 
But Baby Leon performed at one of the two or three Ricardo Midnight shows that I brought back. And it, it was a lot of local talent that we had at that show. The Recorder Midnight Show, for listeners who may not know about that show, started at midnight at the Walker Theater and went all night. And so people would BYOB, and uh, they would just have a great time. And that used to be a regular uh, entertainment staple here in Indianapolis through the 40s and 50s and even into the 60s. And then it ended, and then when I got control of the Recorder, I brought that back because I thought that was such an important uh, way to um, highlight our local talent. So, you know, we, we had a, uh, just a slew of local talent that would perform all night steppers and, you know, uh, you know comedians and, vo- you know, vocalists and groups and dancers. Uh, just it was just a, it was just a good time just to show people who we were and the kind of talent that we had here right in Indianapolis. I'm very glad you brought that up because I did want to ask you specifically about this. I do a show every year around Christmas time uh, looking back at the midnight shows because they were typically held in December and were held as a fundraiser for families in need. That's right. It was a charitable event. Um, It started in, I think, the 1940s, as you mentioned, and was a tradition that kind of went on sporadically until uh, your time at the recorder. And I think after you left, it it sort of sadly kind of fizzled out. Yeah, they didn't Um, do it again. Yeah, which is a shame. It was a lot of work. They should bring it back. Yeah, definitely should bring it back. Everybody wants to bring it back. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. You hear that, recorder. Bring back the midnight show. And, you know, you've experienced this from different angles because Sam and the Solettes performed as an act in 1969 at the the Christmas Benefit concert. Do you remember being there as a performer? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Boy, where do you get all this information? <laughs> oh, boy, we're going to put you to work with the FBI. <laughs> My goodness. What do you remember about, yeah, because you're just a teenager, you're up all night playing. scared to death. Yeah. I'm just scared to death. Where, you know, because you know that venue there, it's a, it's a huge. Walker Theater. Yeah, yeah, it's a huge venue. You're on the stage. People are looking at you, although you can't see them looking at you when you're on the stage. So, but we did it, and we, we pulled it off, and we got our applause, and we went backstage. I just remember us just laughing and being, you know, having this kind of high elation, you know, of having been able to, uh, you know, do our thing, and uh, you know, it's, you just think though, you're a teenager. And see, 1916. I was born in '53. I would have been 16 years old in 1969, and uh, yeah, that that would have been a big thing. <laughs> that would have been a big thing for me. And you mentioned that uh, this was a showcase primarily for local talent, right? Yes. And entertainers like Wes Montgomery performed at uh, this event. You know, the big uh, celebrity musicians of Indianapolis would perform there, as well as newcomers and teenagers like yourself. Yes. Um, one thing that interests me about this as well, and I had a couple questions for you on this topic, is that this wasn't only dancers and singers. Uh, there were all sorts of acts, and, and that included female impersonators, which were a big part of the Avenue culture. And do you remember seeing some of those artists performing at that time? And what did well, you yeah, make of that? Yeah, I used to go to a place. I can't remember. The famous it was door. Betty, yeah. And Betty Kay's Betty, Betty social Yeah, I want yeah. to ask you about this. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I had a lot of gay friends or, mm-hmm. you know, drag queen friends because of our neighborhood and because of writing for the recorder. Uh, so I would go there and do reviews of their shows, too. And I would do honest, you know, reviews of their, their acts. And so they, they had a lot of appreciation for the kind of reviews that I would try to give them. 
um, and so definitely wasn't homophobic or any of that. So I had a lot of interactions with them away from that scene and got to know them as a as as people. Matter of fact, one John, who's now deceased, his name was John Taylor, called himself Jackie. He's taught me how to put on makeup. And so when we would get ready to do shows, he would do our makeup. He'd put on the eyelashes and the wigs and all that stuff, the powders and all that, because we didn't know what we were doing with that stuff, you know, but he did. And so, yeah, we had a great relationship. And so uh, there, I don't know that there are any of those clubs now like there used to be, but they were definitely a, a, a wonderful opportunity to showcase talent from that community you know, as well as to have a social gathering place for them, you know, mm. where they were safe because it was a big deal then at that time. There was a lot of attacks on, uh, you know, gay people, you know, here in the city, not just by um, homophobic people, but even by official police. Right. There's so, a long history of the police harassing and yes, targeting yeah. this community. Yes, yeah, yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. And you again, you were one of the only writers going into clubs like the Famous Door and writing about this in a serious way. And you featured uh, the Famous Door and Betty Kay Social Club in your column, Party People. And I wanted to ask you specifically about that. Uh, the Famous Door was located adjacent to Indiana Avenue. It was in the Avenue neighborhood. It had been a nightclub for many years. It was the Pink Poodle, uh, famously, during the early 60s. And by the late 60s, it had become the Famous Door. And it had really become kind of a showcase for drag performers, right? Sure for was. female impersonators, as they called them. Yes. Yet, uh, tell me about some the atmosphere uh, of the club and kind of any memories you have of being in there. Well, you know, as I said, you know, I, I got to know a lot of the, the gay and drag community, you know, from the neighborhood because, you know, living around the 2300 block of Broadway, we had a heavy drag neighborhood there mm -hmm. area. <clears throat> we were not that far from the Black Curtain. Okay. Yeah, the theater. And, yeah. Uh -huh, where there was a lot of drag performances as well. And just, you know, uh, and then I worked at this restaurant part-time called The Huddle. And it was uh, next door to a nightclub called The Embers. Oh, it's where the gas company uh, is now located, right over there. And I work in the restaurant side, but the restaurant and the bar were connected. So you could just go through the kitchen and be in the bar. I mean, I was underage, so I had to stay in the restaurant working at night. But uh, at after hours, the the drag community would be at the huddle was a twenty four hour restaurant, so they they would come there after you know clubs you know closed and so they gave me this name Lisa, because they decided they didn't like Eunice so Elisa is my middle name so they would call me Lisa that's how they knew me that was my name then period in that whole community, to even today I know a few guys who were in that community who are still alive, and he still calls me Lisa. But uh, you know they would they would complain about their their restriction and um, their oppression in this city uh, in in every arena whether it would be socially civically you know professionally and you know they would say what they had to do just to survive so many of them are deceased now uh, that AIDS epidemic came along and it wiped out a bunch of them you know. And because uh, they just didn't really realize and know uh, what it was at that time. And then uh, those who, who didn't get affected in a fatal way uh, became, you know, very much different people because um, they wanted to live. 
and you know, it, so it was sort of a sad era going into the 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 late seventies and early eighties. You know, after that disastrous period, you know, that they went through. Yeah, so. I, w- I wanted to ask if you knew about any of the particular uh, artists who are famous on the avenue. There's a few people I'm interested in, one of whom is Candy Laverne, who was one of the top yeah, entertainers. A, yeah, Candy Laverne a, and the Cover Girls yeah, was her group. Yeah, yeah. I remember. I yeah. remember Candy Laverne. Yeah. I sure do, yeah. And you know what's interesting, too, even about that era? They're, they were black and white mixed in these venues like no other venue in the city. You wouldn't see that, you know, where you'd have... Uh, black and white entertainers in one place at one time entertaining together on the same stage. And so that was the Candy Laverne, you know. It was a multiracial group. Yes, it was very much multiracial. And I'm curious, you know, looking back at this time in your life when you were writing the Party People column and covering entertainment, did you and your colleagues have any sense of how important this was and how this music was going to, you know, shape culture on a global level? When we look at someone like Babyface, he's... You know, look at I mean, he's worked with Madonna, Barbara yeah, Streisand, yeah. Michael Jackson. You know, he's one of the most influential figures in uh, contemporary culture. Did you realize the significance of what you were writing about at that time? Probably not. But I know now, so that column about that group, I think I'll send it to Babyface and tell him I wanted to help me with my new book. <laughs> hey, Babyface, remember Eunice Trotter? You wouldn't know. It wasn't Trotter then. It was MacLea. MacLea, yeah. MacLea. And... Uh, yeah, babyface. Remember, Eunice MacLeod gave you a break in the news. <laughs> come back, come back here and help a sister out. <laughs> yeah. One final a column I wanted to mention that you wrote for Party People, and I'm mentioning this just to uh, demonstrate the importance of the writing you did. You you covered a concert at Gordy's Lounge of a group who probably nobody had even heard of. This group went on to become incredibly influential on hip hop music. I mean, it's hard to even sum up how important they were. They were called 24 Karat Black. Oh, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, and you wrote about them, and your column was recently republished in a book about 24 Karat Black's album Ghetto Misfortune's Wealth as part of the 33 and a Third series, which is one of the most highly respected uh, music journalism uh, book series that's ever existed. So, again, you know, the work you were doing is being quoted in important books, the work you did as a music journalist. So, yeah, what do you remember about that show? And just kind of what do you think of this idea that you were documenting something really important and you had this unique perspective on it all to kind of sense what was worth looking at? You know, I I wonder why that reporter called me. Yeah, he was (laughs) Yeah, I I didn't know that. But, yeah, it was a reporter who called me a few years back. Yeah. And uh, I could barely remember. And it forced me to go look that column up. And I could barely remember... Uh, doing that, that 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 story, that column, this is the way I'm able to cope and tread water. I have to like let some stuff out so other stuff can get in. <laughs> but so when you meet so many people and down through the years, uh, even today, people say, "Yeah, don't you remember me?" I'm going, "Uh huh." <laughs> My husband would say, "You don't remember nothing." <laughs> I thought, why? Why do I need to remember it for? I've got new stuff to find out about. But, yeah, I do remember that going to Gordy's and covering them. Not just that group, but others, too. Gordy's was a hopping place at that time. As I've mentioned, you've had a historic, legendary career as a journalist. But does it surprise you to hear that this column series you wrote as a young woman, Party People, which you probably never think about too much, does it surprise you to hear how influential this is 50 years later? 
that this is such an important resource for people researching music? Yes, I do. It does surprise <laughs> me because I was just having a good time. Yeah. You know, you know when you when you're doing a thing in the moment, you just never know why God is having you do a thing, and you just do it, and you just that's why you should love what you're doing. You know, uh, because whether you succeed at it or don't succeed at it, you, at least you've done it. And, you know, you don't look back. So I didn't. I never looked back to see what impact this had or that had. I just did it, went on to the next thing. Still doing that same thing. Do it, go on to the next thing, you know. And then that way you, you can, you can uh, have an impact. And you can also find your own stride because... How do you know what you like until you know what you like? So, so I just happen to like everything. So I want to do it all. <laughs> Don't touch that dial. Echoes of Indiana Avenue will return with more from Eunice Trotter after this short break. This is Butch Slaughter, and you're listening to the Echoes of Indiana Avenue. You're tuned in to a special edition of Echoes of Indiana Avenue. Our guest this week is the extraordinary Eunice Trotter, a trailblazing Indianapolis journalist. Eunice Trotter is the former owner and editor-in-chief of the Indianapolis Recorder, the nation's fourth oldest surviving African-American newspaper. Eunice was also the first black editor at the Indianapolis Star. In 2017, the Indiana chapter of the Society of Professional Journalists honored Trotter's achievements by inducting her into the Indiana Journalism Hall of Fame. In just a moment, we'll discuss Eunice Trotter's new book, Black in Indiana. But first, we'll hear more about Eunice's experiences working on the avenue. When Eunice began writing for the Indianapolis Recorder, the paper was still located on Indiana Avenue. The beats Eunice covered as a reporter sometimes took her into strange and unsavory places. And she told WFYI's Kyle Long about a unique form of self-protection she had developed. Let's return to their conversation. And Mr. Trotter, you were either in your late teens or early 20s when you were on this nightclub beat, your young woman going into all kinds of nightclubs, going into neighborhoods that <laughs> might not be the safest place for a young woman to be uh, hanging around. I'm curious, you know, how you kind of protected yourself. But I also wanted to ask you about something I heard. I heard you kept a gun in your wig. Is that true? <laughs> Who told you that? <laughs> you know, I got arrested that way, too. Really? For having that gun wow. in my wig. I did. But, yeah, I did. Yeah, I think I had a gun from the time I was about 15 on. It wasn't until I would imagine I was in my 40s when I stopped carrying a gun. Yeah. But, yeah, I, yeah, I kept a gun. I would, I would uh, put it right here under my wig, pull my hair on. <laughs> <laughs> to, to evade the bouncers when you came into the club? Or oh, just, yeah. yeah. You, know, cause yeah. you know, they look at your purse. Well, I never look. I never, I, you know, I, I didn't get into scrimmages, skirmishes or any really any confrontations with anybody because I would be non-confrontational. But, um, you know, I never had any trouble except one time. Uh, a woman was going to beat me up, 
So she pulled a knife, and of course the gun is the great equalizer. And so when she saw it, she put the knife away and took off and ran. And she said, police, police, she's got a gun. And uh, so police came. Do you have a gun? No, I don't have a gun. <laughs> well, can we check your purse or your car? Sure, check it. And this one police officer, he kept looking at me. He kept looking at me while the other police were checking my purse and everything. And he said, what is that right <laughs> there? And he touched that wig right on top of that gun. <laughs> I'm like, oh, boy, you got me. <laughs> But yeah, they, it, you know, and I thought that that would just destroy me professionally forever. Um, they 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 charged me with a misdemeanor, and uh, I thought, oh boy, I can never be a policewoman because that's what I was going to be—a policewoman. Because now I have a record, but I could have been whatever I wanted to be; it would not have mattered. And uh, I've never had another incident with a gun, hmm. except at the recorder one day. <laughs> <laughs> I was talking to some of the young people of the recorder, uh, and this one reporter, she says, I have to ask you this question, because this is sort of like a, something people have been saying. Did you pull the gun out on an employee at the recorder? <laughs> and so I had to admit that I did. I didn't pull it. I just laid it on the desk. Uh, because, you know, when, when you're a female boss. There, there's a lot of sexism when you're interacting with certain types of men. And this one guy uh, was, was very uh, disrespectful, abusive, and unfortunately the man who was sales manager at the time bought that mess into my office to help, to help him resolve it. He was going to fire him. And so when he came in, I tried to be soft with him. Well, you know, you know, you, you probably would be a better fit someplace else. And you, 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 you've done some good work, but, you know. And so he says, B, and he said the whole word, you don't tell me nothing. I'm not, oh, boy, when he said that, I'm thinking, pulled the drawer open, <laughs> goodbye. <laughs> so I told the, the young ones at the recorder, that was the extent of my gun play that time. They said, well, would you have used it? <laughs> I said, you know, my father, he took us to target practice. He taught us how to use weapons. And he told us that the number one thing you do in life always is take care of yourself. So I've had a lot of training in taking care of myself. Uh, so, but no, I've never, I've never even thought about hurting anybody with it. But I tell you, there have been a few times. <laughs> <laughs> and you started at the recorder when it was still located on Indiana Avenue, right? I sure did. 518 Indiana Avenue? 518, 518 Indiana, Indiana Avenue. Indiana Avenue. Um, uh -huh. Yeah. Tell me about the atmosphere of the avenue kind of when you arrived there as a reporter. Because yeah. it was near the – it was the beginning of the decline of the yeah, avenue, sure I would was. say. Yeah. yeah, it was in the 60s. So I would have – I was 15, 16 years old. So it was in the late 60s. And um, the recorder was in um, – uh, 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 I call it a building, but because then the time, the buildings were so close together, they were like connected, really, just a series of buildings connected one one after the other. And there, every doorway had an interest to a business. Uh, so you could walk 20 feet and you'd be at another business all up and down the avenue. 
So I remember that the the mill the millinery business, the soups, you know, the liquor stores, the beauty shops, the bowling alley. I mean, just a, just so on and on. So many businesses up and down that strip, and you you get to know the people, and they get to know you. So as a teenager, I was poor, more or less a messenger person. You know, I would go pick up lunch for them or. You know, go run an errand is what they would have me doing. You know, it was it was just it was just a happening area, but it was definitely on the decline. And uh, unfortunately, you, you know, the, there was a relocation push by a lot of city officials to get those businesses off the avenue so that the plans for that area could be implemented. And even though people say that this was a like a Black Wall Street area. I, I believe, and there needs to be some research done on this, but I believe that most of those uh, those properties were not owned by black people. They were rented or leased by black people for years and years and years and years and years and years and years. And years. So they didn't really own the properties. Anyway, had no control over whether those properties were going to be sold or not sold. But in the cases where they did own those properties, for example, the Indianapolis Recorder property, uh, there was a big effort to push. They began getting code violations for conditions of the property and that kind of thing, which was used. And then <clears throat> uh, Bert Servas, president of the City County Council for 25, 30 years, former CIA agent, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, uh, convinced uh, the family to move to what I believe was one of his properties at 2901 North Tacoma. Uh, because of the condition of the 518 address, and they did move, which I thought was the craziest thing because that location was not on a front street, and newspapers typically are on front streets, like main thoroughfares all over the country, because they were um, community gathering spots. This is how you got the news. People would drop in and give you the lowdown on something. Uh, we didn't have cell phones and all that stuff then. A lot of people didn't even have home house phones. So they would come by the recorder and they'd blow the breeze and tell you the latest gossip. Most of which wouldn't be true, but you might get a thread or two out of there. And so when when that institution <clears throat> and a lot of those other institutional uh, businesses um, moved, that really spelled the, the decline. When, when I was a reporter at the Star, I remember covering a story, it would have been into the late 70s, early 80s then, uh, of a woman who had returned home from her work, a day at work, and her house had been demolished. Well, it was demolished to make way for Bert Servas properties that he had there. And I remember, you know, it was one of those, oh, I'm sorry, we, we made a mistake. But that happened multiple times. So this, these homes were torn down with all of the residents' possessions inside. So uh, that's, that's a fact. So yeah. there are stories that we did do about that. He was one of the architects sort of of the destruction of the avenue, right? Yes, Bert he was. Yeah. yeah, and he doesn't get blamed for that a lot. And I shouldn't call it blame. Um, I but I don't know another word to use. And you talked about sort of this accidental destruction. Some of these buildings were protected by historical preservation guidelines, yes. right? And they still ended up getting uh, Accidentally demolished. Accidentally torn down. Yeah. Oh, yeah. shoot. Yeah. Heck, I didn't mean to do that. Yeah. And that's what happened. 
you know, as a journalist, you were probably more keenly aware of what was happening on the avenue during this time. Oh, How did you feel about it? I mean, did you feel like a crime is being committed here against these people because well, they have the uh, power and authority just to do what they want? How did you kind of assess it all? Well, I blame um, African-American people to some extent um, because I think that a lot of us believe that the white man's ice is colder. So there becomes little resistance to being relocated to an integrated setting because the thought then becomes, I've arrived. I'm doing better than I was doing in that segregated ghetto on the east side or on the avenue. We have better services now. So to an extent that they're, they're correct, they are living better. The trash isn't getting thrown all over the alley by the city collectors. You know, the streets are being paved and taken care of and swept. You know, mosquitoes are being sprayed for. Uh, but I think we have a responsibility to use our political muscle to put pressure on the proper places to get these services uh, in our communities. Uh, my dad was a segregationist. And we lived in a neighborhood that was all black except a few of the businesses there. We went to all black schools, all black church, all black theater, all black park. And we we never had the, we, we didn't see any of the consequences of integration as we grew up. So we didn't have that racism to deal with or none of that. That gave us a confidence and a security about who we were. Because down the street were teachers, there was a dentist over there, around the corner was an entrepreneur. We had a variety of people within our community that we could look up to and see. What, is, what happened is the, all the poor, uneducated people got all pressed together so that these children now are only seeing other people like themselves who are poor. They, you become hopeless. There's no way out. They only see the drug dealers in the communities, you know, as a way to make money and to have the kind of things that they would want, anybody would want to have. So, you know, I, I look at us as, as sometimes being our own worst enemy when it comes to that, but it's because of the kind of brainwashing that we have been subjected to as it relates to race. And so until we have the confidence in ourselves that we can do whatever we want to do, we're going to continue to have this cycle. This is Butch Slaughter, and you're listening to the Echoes of Indiana Avenue. If you're just tuning in, our guest this week is the trailblazing Indianapolis journalist Eunice Trotter. We've been talking about Eunice's historic career at the Indianapolis Recorder and Indy Star. Up next, we'll focus on Eunice's latest project, a book titled Black in Indiana. Black in Indiana is a work of historical fiction about Eunice's ancestor, Mary Bateman Clark, and her fight to end indentured servitude in Indiana during the 1800s. Let's return to our conversation with Eunice Trotter. And Ms. Trotter, I do want to talk about your book that was published this year, Black in Indiana. This is a very important book. It deals with the history of your great, great, great 
grandmother, Mary Bateman Clark, right? Yes. And this book documents uh, a very important uh, case that Mary Bateman Clark brought that eventually went to the Indiana Supreme Court, and it deals with uh, slavery in Indiana, right? Yes. Slavery was forbidden by the Indiana Constitution, but the rich and powerful found a loophole through which they could uh, force people to uh, be kept in indentured servitude. Yes. And Mary Bateman Clark was one of the victims of this indentured servitude and brought a case that, like I mentioned, went to the Indiana Supreme Court that really helped unravel this uh, evil thing that was being perpetrated. Tell me a little bit about uh, how this book came together and, you know, your great, great, great grandmother, Mary Bateman Clark. Well, I worked on that book as just uh, out of a, as a labor of love for for decades, actually doing the research for it. And you know, as I mentioned earlier, my father's from Vincennes, Indiana, so his generation was the last of our family to have lived there in Vincennes. Um, but before him, there were probably five generations prior to his his being born, which he was born in the early 1900s. Um, so, I, you know, as I went back in my family line, um, I learned more and more about Mary Clark. Um, well, with the Mary Bateman Clark case, it was not a case about slavery, although it was. It was a case about contract law. Can you force a person to perform personal services when they don't want to? Can you make the manicures manicure your fingernails? Can you make you know, your hairstylist do your hair and she doesn't want to? Well, the answer is no. And so that contract law and that um, vehicle called indentured servitude was a contract. Servants signed those contracts, and they were told they were binding legally. And if they could not fulfill the terms of that contract, they would be returned to a state of slavery and sent out of the state because slavery was illegal in the state, although it was still practiced. And it was practiced by the highest officials in the state, including the man for whom Marion County here in Indianapolis was named. Um, Harrison, Clay, on and on I can go. Vanderburg, on and on. Uh, They were all slaveholders. They were the lawyers, the, the entrepreneurs, the elected officials, the governors, even the presidents of the United States as in William Henry Harrison. Uh, So when I found those documents, I was able to really take off in terms of research. And I spent so much time in Vincennes, uh, in those communities there. Vincennes once had the largest black community in the state because it was, after all, like the New York City of the old Northwest. This is where everyone settled first before going to other parts of the state. And there were French, there were British, there were Native Americans, and there were African Americans there. Some free, most indentured and enslaved. Uh, And so Mary came from Kentucky, uh, became a a servant of one of the relatives of William Henry Harrison. Uh, Her indenture contract was sold to uh, her master's uncle, who was General Washington Johnson, and he was a founder of masonry here in Indiana. So Johnston, you know, had her as a servant. And in her contract, she was to serve him for 20 years and receive no pay, receiving only food to eat and clothes to wear. 
Uh, there was a lawyer who, who was very unsung. He was from the East. His name was Amory Kenny, And he t began taking these cases on. Now, some would argue that, oh, they were just pawns. But no, you, you, you're not going to be a pawn in a case like that because, number one, you have to agree to it. And number two, you are definitely going to get some heat as a result of that case that you filed because you and your community will get it from the larger community. And, and so did Amory Kenny. There were stories in the newspapers, which were my, one of my primary tools for doing the research, the newspapers, where uh, it was reported that he was beaten up by some of the townspeople because he was handling these cases. And I'm sure Mary caught it as well. So in the book, I, I uh, use my creative license to, to set the culture and the tone and the, the language and the time and told that story. But all of the, the um, examples of the history that I use and the stories, are they're true stories that, that, are, that are well documented. How do you see the importance of this story today of Mary Bateman Clark? What does it say today to us? Well, to me, this, this story is a stark example of the hypocrisy of government. It's a stark example of the very foundation of the founding of this country. And it's just sad because you, here you have the highest officials of the land who wrote this Constitution, you know, for the nation and for the state, violating it. And so, you know, we, we experience some of these same kind of, of um, strategies that uh, officials use even now. So they, they make the law and find ways to break that law which they made. And so it's sort of sad, you know, that that, that, that is a case. And it's, it's sad that even though these men were all considered great men, and they, they were great men in, in many ways, but for some people, um, their greatness was, was not an asset for the peace and well-being of those people. So that, 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 to me, is one of the messages that we, we have to look at the man in the mirror. We have, to, we have to do more than talk that talk. We've got to walk that walk. One of, I took a course some years ago that was on race and culture. It was in New York at a university there. I took this week-long course. And um, one of the things that I remember in that course that really was hammered home to me was uh, what is important with different cultures of people. For white males, I was taught, what is most important is intent. If your intentions are good, then that's all that matters. And you'll see many who will fall back to intent. For black people, we don't care what your intention was. What did you do? <laughs> Show me the beef. Walk the walk. Don't just talk the talk. So that's, that's a cultural difference. That, that should be explained and taught and examined, actually. So that's one of the things that really stuck with me. And, so in, in, and that's what I try to bring out in that book, that some of these men did have good intentions. They felt like, well, they're in a better situation being a servant to me than they ever could be on their own in the woods, taking care of themselves. So they should be happy that I've allowed them to serve me. So, you know, and that happens today. You should be happy that you now work at Eli Lilly. You should be happy that you now work for the city. You should be happy 
that you have a president who's your caller who was elected. You should be happy. There you are complaining, <laughs> you know. Stop that complaining. Go somewhere and sit down and pick some feathers out of those chickens, put it in a pot, and then come and give it to me on my china. Okay? <laughs> the book Black in Indiana is available on Amazon and all the typical online outlets, right? Yes, it is. It is. It is. And the audio book will be out within a month, so... You know, I really appreciate you taking time to be here today. Is there any final thoughts you wanted to add? Anything I didn't ask you about that you wanted to express? Oh well, no. I just, you know, thank you for for letting me have this opportunity to to leave some kind of recorded memento of my thoughts and experiences. And you know, I just just want to say that I love my country and my city and my state and the people here. I've been all over this country, real over the world, and I like a homing pigeon come right back to Indiana. And so in writing my book, you know, I wanted to say back home in Indiana. <laughs> but, you know, this, this, this is a great place to be, and there's a lot of opportunity here. We just have to tap into and know that we have the ability to do that. And all we need is just a little crack to get through and, you know, I th one of the things I joke about is, boy, everybody needs some good black friends, and all black people need good white friends. That's what we need to do. Get some friends on all sides of the coin, of all colors, religions. Get some friends. Very true, and I really appreciate you uh, being so generous with your time today. So thank you. It was an honor to have you here. Thank you. Like I said, I've been wanting to talk to you for a long time, so thank you for doing this. I thank you. It. Thank you. Thank you very much. Our guest this week has been Eunice Trotter, the former owner and editor-in-chief of the Indianapolis Recorder and a member of the Indiana Journalism Hall of Fame. You can find Eunice's new book, Black in Indiana, online at all major book outlets. And you can attend an upcoming event with Eunice Trotter called Generation to Generation. It's happening from August 27th to the 29th at Scott United Methodist Church. You can meet me here on the Avenue again next week. Same time, same place. And you can find the Echoes of Indiana Avenue podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you download your podcasts. Echoes of Indiana Avenue is written and produced by Kyle Long and hosted and co-produced by me, Herman Butch Slaughter. Thanks for listening. Nobody knows on uptown, baby, like I do. Do. Nobody knows on uptown, baby, like I do. Do. If you will stop and listen, I will tell you a thing or two. When you get lonesome and want to